Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of FYI. My name is Nicholas Gruss, and I'm a research and trading associate here at ARC. Today, I'm joined by Max Friedrich. Glad to be here. I'm the fintech analyst at ARC. So, ARC recently held an event called Adapting to Fintech. At our event, there was a panel discussion. It was hosted by Bob Pisani. He was the moderator. And we had some very distinguished guests speak on the topic of fintech. The guests included Karen Snow, Head of East Coast Listings and Corporate Services at NASDAQ, Laura Morrison, Global Head of Listings at CBOE Global Markets, Dominic Holland, Head of Fixed Income Electronic Markets at BNY Markets, Morgan Dunbar, Partner at Bendingo Partners, and of course, Kathy Wood, Founder, CEO, and CIO at ARK Invest. So we're going to listen to a few of the clippings from the panel discussion and then go into further talk about some of the big ideas that were discussed at this panel. This is um, one of the topics I feel most passionate about, so I readily agreed uh, to do this. This is my 29th year at CNBC, but I have been a science fiction fan since the 1960s. And of course, you get a certain bunch of people who said, gee, what happened to my jetpack? I don't see people flying around with jetpacks. What happened to the future? It's not where it used to be. But I got news for you. The future is pretty remarkable. So if I would have told you 50 years ago, I'm going to carry a device around in my pocket. You're going to be able to call anywhere in the world. You're going to be able to pull up any piece of data anywhere that ever existed. You're going to have something that's more powerful than the computers that sent a man to the moon. In 50 years, and it's going to cost a couple hundred dollars. They would have thought you were crazy in 1950. So yeah, we don't have jetpacks, but you know, we have something even more remarkable than that. We have technology and it's just the beginning. And that's what disruptive technologies are all about. You know, we have these categories and ways of looking at the stock market. We invest in industrials. We invest in technology. We invest in retail. I do this all the time. I'm the stocks reporter. It's an easy, quick way to understand a shorthand way to understand how the markets are working. But increasingly, these categories are meaningless because the truth is that technology is changing every single category. I don't care if you're operating a railroad. Call CSX. They will tell you they're a fintech company. Wait, you're a railroad. You're not a fintech. A logistics company. A a logistics. Thank you. (laughs) Karen's going to correct me all the time. I can smell it already. cover equities. Okay. You've got to be careful talking to these equities people. So she's right. It's a, they're a, they're a company that moves stuff around. They're a logistics company, but behind it, they're a technology company and everything is a technology company. And that's why no matter what you're dealing with, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, robotics, all of these disruptive technologies are changing the way the world is looking. And don't kid yourself, it's changing the world for the better. 
I see a smattering of millennials here. I love millennials because I think they're hardworking, decent, and they got screwed by the financial crisis. And I don't think our older generation really appreciates just how badly they got screwed. So I love millennials. My producer's here. Kirsten's here. And uh, I'm a big supporter of them. And don't let, to the millennials, don't let the old folks tell you that they were the greatest generation and you were a bunch of freeloaders. That's a lot of nonsense. And believe in the future. Somebody once said, I believe in the future because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. <laughs> that's why I believe in the future. We've got a panel of, of experts here, um, and uh, they're not going to shut up. So uh, I'm going to try to shut them up after one hour. I, we're going to stop at 7 o'clock. These, this is sort of light informative. Um, I'm going to try to hold on for some questions in the last 10 minutes, so, so hold on, and uh, please uh, have a, a couple. Uh, a good friend of mine, Kathy Wood, um, is a real wind-up, uh, she's just a wind-up person on, uh, on technology in general. So, Kathy, let me just start with you. What technologies do you think are the most important driving fintech today? Uh, well, there are, are, there are three major ones. Uh, you hit on uh, one of the most important, mobile. Uh, we are going to be carrying... Uh, really carrying a bank around in our pocket and the, and the, and the groups driving that are millennials. Uh, I'm just amazed that Jamie Dimon just announced another 90 bank branches. That was today, I think. That's nuts. It's nuts. It's crazy. Uh, so mobile, uh, uh, we think is critical. We think, uh, and we think there, right now there are about 40 million digital wallets in the United States already. That would be in the form of Square Cash and Venmo, PayPal's Venmo. Uh, in five years, we think that will be 200 million. Uh, but the, the movement really started when it came to mobile in China. Uh, mobile payments in China today, are, uh, to, or in 2018, were $24 trillion. Think about that. That's almost two times the size of China's economy. And it has barely begun here. China accounts for 92% of mobile payments around the world. Uh, and in five years, we think that's going to be, they'll still account for 80%. Okay, wow. So a lot of powerful stuff right there from Kathy and a great introduction from Bob. Max, let's get into this. Kathy talked about mobile, China, what's going on in fintech. Can you kind of Explain some of the drivers that Kathy touched on and just take us a little further into this this realm, this growing opportunity. Yes, yes. So like you said, um, Kathy mentioned a bunch of points here. So it's actually a great opportunity to take a step back and just talk about our high-level view on fintech. And one place to start is millennials. Kathy mentioned them as one of the driving forces behind fintech and mobile. And we think that millennials are one of the three main driving forces behind fintech. So one would be millennials, the other the digital economy overall, and the third one, the opportunity of the unbanked. So starting with millennials, there was a study done in 2017 looking at the user demographic of uh, PayPal's Venmo, so the, the, the viral P2P digital wallet of PayPal. And in this study, it was found that 42% of all the Americans in the ages between 18 and 29, so these millennials, are using Venmo. And under, in, in between them, 43 of them 
actually use Venmo daily. So we, we see a really high engagement of those young users. And then if you look at older generations, uh, the adoption of Venmo decreases. So it's it's lower for, for all the folks, which makes sense because we saw that in other digital phenomenons that millennials are kind of the first to or young people over are kind of the first to adopt. Um, and over time, all the generations kind of get to these levels. And to find evidence for that, you can look to social media. So actually, if you go back to 2006, you would see that 41% of adults in the US in the same age group, so 18 to 29, use social media. And that directly matches the 42% we see for Venmo or fintech overall today. So from that angle, you can say that fintech today is where social media was in 2006. And over the last 13 years, between 2006 and 2019, of course, we saw that in terms of social media, the older generations followed the young. And now social media is really a phenomenon across all generations. And we think that as both social media and uh, fintech, but especially uh, P2P payment applications like Venmo, both benefit from network effects. We think that something really similar can can happen to fintech. And that's also probably accelerated by the, the high mobile penetration that wasn't there 2006, right? And also maybe other factors such as well, as as a young person, you maybe don't even want your parents or grandparents on social media looking at your photos or whatnot, whereas you, you definitely want them on, on, on Venmo so they can send you some money here and there, right? So we think that fintech is, is going to follow that path and become really a phenomenon across all different age groups. And then moving over to, to, to the next driver we see behind fintech, it's really the digital economy that we already see around us. So Think of Amazon, Airbnb, Airbnb, Uber, all these companies we are used to now, they all require a fintech counterpart, which actually facilitates the transfer, exchange, and, and storage sometimes of value over the internet on these platforms. So there would be no Amazon if there was no possibility of transferring value via the internet, for example, via PayPal. So if you believe that the economy with companies such as the one I just mentioned will become more digital and more online, you also have to put fintech in the in this equation. You also have to believe in 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 a fintech application there. So we think that fintech is powering this digital economy. It's its fuel. But it's also more than that. It's not only powering the economy, it's also enabling total new business models. So if you think about something like micromobility, you know, all these all these scooter companies we hear about, there would be no micromobility if there was no way to actually do the transactions at a moment where you are in front of your, your micro vehicle with your mobile phone, right? And then there are whole other business models built upon fintech and microtransactions, such as Twitch, which is, you know, powered by the power of tipping and tipping, of course, also being really easy just by, you know, in, in the use case of Uber, where you easily can tip your Uber driver. So that is really, really, really interesting for us. Right. You bring up a lot of good points here and it's it's very incremental steps, right? In yeah. fintech, you know, there's not these big, jumps and leaps in, in the space. But when you talk about micromobility, imagine walking up to one of these e-scooters and swiping a credit card instead of downloading <laughs> yeah. an app. You you can pay on the app and then the company can also track 
that via the app. So it's just these very small incremental movements that have pushed the space in ever reaching directions. And, and almost everything is in some way, shape or form touching fintech. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so, so moving, moving from that to the third driver, which we think is the opportunity of the unbanked and, and that is really a huge opportunity. So if you read the latest World Bank report, as of 2017, there are 1.7 billion people unbanked today, or as of 2017. And the, the opportunity of providing financial services to those is really huge. And this actually circles back to, to a lot of what Kathy said about mobile, because if you look at the, the relationship between the mobile penetration and the unbanked rate, there's actually a, a, cross, a, a close correlation there. So if you plot, and, and we found this in our research, if you plot the mobile penetration as a percentage of the global population and then plot the unbanked rate also as a percentage of global population, you'll see that for each percent uh, you increase the mobile penetration, the unbanked rate appears to decrease by around 1%. And we think that there probably is causality behind that. Um, it's not just coincidence. And the World Bank, in, in their reporting, they actually point to mobile as one of the, the main drivers of decreasing the, the unbanked rate, especially in countries or regions like Sub-Saharan Africa, where you know you have 10 economies where more adults have a mobile money account than have an account at a you know, normal financial institutions institution especially you know if you look at a country like kenya with the high penetration of m-pesa yeah and you bring you bring up a great point here about mobile and about this unbanked population and you can see in the fintech space companies taking advantage of this yes right let's talk a little bit about square and paypal because we're not going to get around talking about fintech without talking about those two companies you look at square and what they're doing with Cash App, growing at a rapid rate, targeting areas in the country that have unbanked populations, issuing debit cards, allowing for direct deposit from your employer right into the Cash App. Obviously, you can buy Bitcoin there as well. It's becoming this, as Kathy said, and as Max has said, this bank branch in your pocket, which is really powerful. Yes, touching on a great point here, Nick. You're exactly right. So, and, and we also saw this in our research where we compared the interest for Cash App geographically by state in the US. So, so using Google search trends, which can function as kind of a proxy for interest or even adoption and comparing this geographical interest with the FDIC's unbanked rate by state. And what you find is that in, in states which you find a really high unbanked rate, and these are mostly the southern states around Florida and Mississippi and other states like that, you also find the highest interest for Square's cash app. And that's, that's, that's really a fascinating finding. And we think that, and, and Nick just talked about that, what probably the cause for that is that uh, Square's cash app has this feature where you can let your employer deposit your paycheck directly in your cash app and then you have the debit card which which nick just mentioned and what you have as a bank account right without the actual bank which is fascinating and in their last earning call you know jack dorsey and square c all talked a lot about adding more and more financial 
services to Cash App to bring this really digital wallet experience, which we think is is much more than P2P or much more than just just your simple bank account, but just but is really a, a financial ecosystem where you have access to credit, to insurance, you have access to different e-commerce offerings, ride hailing and all these different services, you know, in your digital wallet. So so Square is, is really interesting there. And and Nick, I know you you've done more work on Square. How do you see Square kind of generally as as a as a leader in the space? Again, I think if you're going to talk about fintech, Square is going to get brought up in the conversation. They're pioneering the space. They've come at it originally starting with this revolutionary POS system, you know, the the credit card swipe from the mobile phone, now built out full registers for merchants and now really targeting the consumer. So they're coming at it from multiple different entry points and that's giving them one great brand awareness. You walk into a restaurant, you see the POS system, you instantly think that's square and then you go on to your phone and you see you have cash app and everyone's, you know, cash apping everyone and you have that network effect that you were talking about before where if I send you, you know, a cash, you know, transaction via the cash app and you don't have the app, well, you're going to download it to get your 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 money. And, and Square, you know, just this week had released online solutions. So, whereas, you know, another player in the space you can think about is Shopify. Shopify being the online website builder that's come at it from a different angle. So, starting from online and then going into POS systems, Square went from POS systems into online. But Square has really done a lot for the space. And I think they're they're definitely a leader there as well as PayPal and, and some of these other players. Yeah. Although we, we're talking about US names right now, Kathy mentioned that we can't talk about fintech by letting by not talking about China. Right. Um, and I know you love China. You have an interest there. And Kathy just mentioned some numbers, you know, 24 trillion in mobile payment volume, you know, nearly double China's $13 trillion GDP. So it's, 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 it's amazing what's going on there. So what, what's your, what's your view on that, Nick? Right. So if, if you're going to talk about the U.S. fintech space, you're going to talk about Square. But if you're going to talk about the global fintech space, you're going to talk about China. China has, you know, a large portion of the world's population and has really come on as a leader in pioneering mobile payments. You look at the success of WeChat and Alipay, Ant Financial's payment system, and the adoption that they've received in such a short amount of time. WeChat has over 1 billion users. It's accepted in most merchant places, uh, you know, not only in China, but now starting across the globe. Same with Alipay. Alipay has 700 million users, which is just a staggering statistic to think about those two platforms and what they're able to do. And another interesting portion, you know, when you look at China is it's is these apps don't just function in one one-off solutions. They're they're these super apps. And so you kind of had mentioned before about lending, credit, all of these different aspects of fintech, insurance. These apps in China, they actually combined all of those solutions. And I know you've you've looked into the space as well. So I would love to get your thoughts on the space in China. Yeah. So just just painting the bigger picture here. Like like I just said, and as Kathy mentioned, twenty four trillion in mobile payment volume in two thousand eighteen. That's up from 
virtually zero 10 years ago, around 1 trillion in 2014. So we, we really saw a staggering growth. And then if you would look a little bit into the future, Kathy also mentioned that in 2022, we see the global volume of mobile transfers, mobile value transfers at 55 trillion. Today, China is responsible for around 92% of mobile value transfers. Then we think China will be uh, responsible for around 80%. So we see other other countries kind of following following China's leads, like China's lead here. And you know, the US will be will be a strong force here. Kathy also talked about uh, the 200 million digital wallet users we expect to be in the US in five years. That's again the bank branch in your pocket, financial ecosystem in your pocket. And and just to put some more numbers to that, so so you can really see this the, the scale of this opportunity. Today, investors pay around 3,500 in market cap per demand deposit customer in a traditional bank. So, so that's how much um, investors value each of these relationships. So if, if you would apply that to the digital wallet opportunity, as we see it in, in, in five years with these 200 million users, that's a, you know, multi hundred billion opportunity. We think it could go up to 700 billion opportunity just in terms of market cap, which is then shared by some of the most important players in the U.S. So, so turning that P2P wallet that we see here in the US that already has a widespread scale, turning that into a true digital wallet with, with a lot of financial applications is a huge opportunity. Right. And I think, you know, if we're going to take away anything from this conversation about China, it's if you want to see where the US is going to be in five, 10 years in terms of mobile payments and, and, and in the fintech space in general, we'll just, you know, look at China. And that's really where we're headed. And that's where the rest of the world is headed. And we're all playing catch up, trying to get onto this, you know, mobile payment platform, mobile first platform. And so, you know, the next portion that we're going to listen to in our panel here focuses on, well, when you do have all of these users using mobile and there's all of this data generation, well, how is that data playing a role in fintech? So we're going to listen to two of our panel members, Morgan and Dominic, go back and forth a little bit on how data is playing a role in the stock market and the exchanges and and in the background there. And Max and I will go on to talk about the the, the larger role data plays in fintech and, and the, the broader world in general. What I want is, I want to ask the boys to say something. So um, <laughs> now, guys, this, these three are very intimidating. It, it's difficult to, to, for you to get in here. But let me just, uh, Morgan, you in, do a lot of investing in early stage uh, fintech companies. Well, where do you see uh, promise right now? Where, what do you see most promise? Blockchain or what, what, what's out there now? So I think all of those comments are valid. We're obviously seeing a lot of stuff in blockchain, AI, all of the um, kind of thematic uh, influences that, that Kathy mentioned, I'd say um, it's important to note that data is sort of the lifeblood of all of these things. Um, everyone's familiar with the IBM study. 90% of the world's data didn't exist two years ago. That's going to accelerate to your point about cell phones. So data's underlying is the, is the grist for all of these independent mills. Um, I was part of that electronic onslaught in 2004, like the, the new enemy on the floor. 
Um, since leaving the sell side, we've been focused on fintech, um, emerging fintech companies, but with a specific focus on capital markets. And what I think is interesting uh, to note uh, where we spend a lot of time is the investment in a lot of this technology and, and sort of um, knowledge work, if you will, is moving upstairs. So, you know, it had historically been kind of at the exchange level or sort of like the like big fintech, uh, like a Broadridge or an investment mm-hmm. type of company. And then it sort of, you know, morphed more into the sell side, making more strategic investments. Um, and I would say, just to throw out a number to make a point, let's say 90% of that activity was market structure focused, right? So it was easy for everybody to go into bats, right? Um, now we're seeing the buy side, the asset management community, get much more animated, not only around understanding the technology, getting mm-hmm. to know some of the younger emerging fintech companies, but actually investing directly on them in a, in a strategic in them on a strategic basis. Um, I run a, uh, an event with a partner or an organization with a partner called the Air Summit, and we are exclusively focused on buy-side front office use cases when it comes to emerging financial technology. Um, it's a member organization. Some 80 companies have come through the uh, platform that have gone on to raise over a billion and a half of follow-on equity capital. Um, if you include some acquisitions, it's north of $5 billion. And we're starting to see this really, really ramp, particularly at the kind of uh, endangered species incumbents among the kind of 40-act mutual fund complexes, the guys who are losing to passive, that are losing to ETF. They're saying, mm-hmm. we have to understand how we leverage things like AI to automate parts of our research process or our investment process because it's a, it's the costs are just getting too high. Yeah. We have to buy all this alternative data that didn't exist two years ago. and We don't even know if there's any signal in it. We don't know if it works. And pulling that into our technology stack is not insignificant. So this is you know complicated endeavor. And um, underlying all of that, the guys that are they're you know the doing it the best and the smartest have. C-suite buy-in and understand that it's as much a cultural issue as it is a technology issue. Um, you can hire the best AI minds in the world, but if, if, the, if the organization, if the culture of the organization is not set to nurture them, then it just doesn't, it's not going to work. Yeah. So we're well, seeing, that goes back to the problems about on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It's, it's very analogous. You were talking yeah. about, Lord, how resistant they all were. Uh, and there's still old guys who come around every once in a while and say, ah, that was the best when we were there. Now it's terrible. We don't want to go through it. And you know what you do is you never be nostalgic about any of that stuff <laughs> at all. You can say, you know, it was a great privilege to be there in 1999. And I felt it was uh, to, be a, to be there and a great privilege. And I think it's still a great privilege. Uh, to be there. But I never look back and say, oh, there were 5,000 people on the floor. Now there's only 500 and there's nobody. And we, was, we were the best and now it's all, all a bunch of computers. The machines are taking over. And, uh, 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 uh. Baloney. <laughs> the, fu- the best is ahead of you. The future is ahead of you. And if you don't believe that, I don't know how people get up in the morning uh, every day. Uh, and I don't understand how people can get up and, and think uh, or have a, a leader say to them, ladies and gentlemen, the world's going to hell and it's not getting any better. Follow me. Not people going to not many people are going to follow you. So believe in the future and, and what's going on. Uh, Dominic, we talk you're in the electronic uh, you're in um, uh, fixed income over yep. at BNY. 
Now, there's a field that could use a little modernization. <laughs> you think? Not that I'm prejudiced because I'm an equities guy. No, but you guys are still like, you know, trading pieces of paper with each other. The OTC business is like, come on, when are we moving here? I now, I know market access is trying to get, we got a big IPO coming of a company that's trying to push this along. Um, how about we move to telephones next? When is the, uh, when is the industry going to go into the 21st century? Yeah, we're trying to get rid of faxes right now. I, I know. That's like a, I came- advanced technology. I didn't, I didn't expect to actually speak here today. I, I just thought I was going to learn some stuff that I can take back. So yeah, exactly. gonna, you guys are going to educate me. Um, we're looking at it from across all of the asset classes and thinking about all of these great terms in it. artificial intelligence. What does it really mean? Blockchain. What's the practical use case for that? These are all great stories. We know that it's going to come. We know they're going to be used. What's the practical implication for our customers? So to do that, we try and go back a couple of steps. What do our customers trade? What are their requirements? What are their asset classes that they're in? And and even further back, being a custodian bank, what are the processes that they have to go through? And how do we think about the life cycle, you know, cradle to the grave of a transaction and a client's um, portfolios and safekeeping of their investments and their holdings? It goes back to your point around data. Data is the starting point for all of this. And there isn't very much clean data, whether it's in fixed income or equities. Cleaning it, organizing it, so that you can actually read it is, is a bigger task than anyone thinks. So it's really sexy to hear about AI and blockchain and everything, but you've got to do some really, you've got to invest in, in some really boring, laborious tasks to actually get to a point where you can monetize this. <laughs> Your reality kind of intrudes in the future a it little does. bit. You know? But once you get that and you standardize it, then, then you can really adopt this. And when you think about the pace of change, the data, IBM's comment, that's going to accelerate. You're absolutely right. The pace of change is going to accelerate. So it's a great opportunity for people to take stock, to think about the organization of this data, and then where do we go? So we're looking at the equity market, working with colleagues like Ron around what's been going on in that that space. What can we bring into a fixed income? Very close with our foreign exchange people, uh, all of the futures and everything, and we go through that. And mainly we're listening to our customers, hearing what their challenges are. I think the overarching theme for me in the last five years has been the level of of free returns for customers has diminished significantly. The cost base for them has not diminished necessarily across a spectrum of asset classes. How do they increase returns to their customers? How do they reduce operational risk? How do they increase the efficiencies? And one of the ways of doing that is to leverage technology. There's been a move to passive. We all hear about that. You guys know it more than I do because I'm in fixed income. Um, But then when you go through that and you think about how do we leverage that, how do we get people in this, this period is going to be sustained for some time. So I think the buy side, particularly the large, um, you know, traditional asset managers, I've been amazed at how much they've invested in the last three to five years in systems and changing their workflows. Two perspectives on data, we just heard all different kinds of talking points, increasing efficiency, clearing up unstructured data. Nick, I know that you've done some work um, regarding data in the fintech space, especially insurance, I think. What yes. are your thoughts? Yeah. So as Dominic and Morgan mentioned, you know, the data aspect of their business, extremely important. And, and I'll leave it to them to, you know, to speak on that because they are the experts. And the, the area that I've focused on in in the fintech space has been insurance and that aspect of having data is no more 
you know, important anywhere else in the world than in insurance. Insurance is a data dependent business. Without data, you can't price risk. So you look at what's happening in the insurance space with artificial intelligence and deep learning and blockchain and all of these different areas that ARC covers and, and invests in converging. And the insurance has historically always been an industry that's lagged behind in terms of technology. And today, I think we're finally starting to see movements in the right direction in terms of taking the next step with technology and insurance. And you're seeing this huge growth in what everyone has labeled insure tech. So, just walking through how some of these companies operate you start to see how fintech and and payments and all of these different areas have influenced insurance a great example there's you know lemonade is the, is the prime example everyone talks about that's the the poster child for insuretech but there's another company out there doing just as exciting things in a different space and this is in car insurance root insurance what they're able to do again bringing back mobile and the power of the phone you sign up on root you get your phone out they actually track how you drive for a week or so and then price a policy for you there you're looking at another movement in the broader insurance space with usage based insurance you have all of these devices coming online well now they're starting to price policy to the user and how much you use a certain or how accessible you are to risk when you're driving a car. If you only drive your car for a few weeks a year, then you should, your insurance pr- policy should represent that. And this is kind of where the, the lines of fintech blur a bit. But this is all data dependent. All of these devices accumulating massive amounts of data that need to be scrubbed by AI and deep learning to actually mean something to the company. Max, why don't you just take us through, I guess we can go back to Square, a great example of how they're using data to maybe lend to certain areas or certain businesses that a bank otherwise wouldn't. Yes, exactly. So we have to go back to Square here again also. The the main application here would be Square Capital. Kathy actually mentioned it also in, in the panel we heard recently there. Square for giving out their loans, they are tracking 300,000 data points versus a traditional lender, which for their loan decision is relying on about 800. And the fascinating thing is really how Square is doing that. So Nick talked a lot about kind of their progress from providing this point of sale system, but then this whole ecosystem of other services and software around that. So what you have with Square is really this this unique opportunity of Square to track all different kind of data that is flowing through the point of sale device, but also, you know, to other sources. So whether it be inventory or, or their payroll. So Square can rely on this, this really universe of data that represents the financial health of the respective merchant. And based on this, this picture Square is able to create, they can then proactively approach the merchant and ask the merchant, hey, do you have need for a loan, right? That is a completely kind of turnaround of, of the normal relationship a merchant would have with the bank regarding loans, right? And regarding paying back that loan from the merchant side, Square is also offering a completely different 
kind of repayment structure where Square takes the interest payments, can, ta- can take the interest payments directly out of the cash flow of their respective merchant. So for the merchant, it's a, you know, completely seamless experience. And of course, that's only one kind of way Square is levering data. Right. And I think you bring up a lot of good points and, and we've talked a lot about Square today, but in just a broader picture, I think the the movement that's happened in in fintech recently, and this this goes for insurance, it goes for payment processing services, is there was an unmet need in the market that banks usually or had historically met, but hadn't met to the customer satisfaction. And fintech companies came in with very tailored solutions driven by data that they had collected and and come in and service merchants, consumers in a better way. This is seen in insurance, particularly an area that I've focused in. You look at how insurance companies and especially insure tech companies are now starting to act as proactive in their approach towards risk. A great example of this is in the home. Leveraging the data that's driven off of IoT devices in the home, well, your insurance company can now step in and say, your device, your smart smoke alarm is not plugged in. You should update the batteries and you should plug in new batteries to avoid some type of risk that's associated with that, uh, a fire. So I think in this, and this is, you know, can it be extrapolated to all of the fintech space where consumers bringing it back to the unbanked, needed a way to access funds and they didn't want to have to step into a bank branch every week. So seeing this disintermediation of larger banks, insurance carriers, by some of these smaller players in both the fintech side and the insurtech side, I think it's, it's a lasting trend and it's going to be with us for a few years going forward. Yeah, exactly, Nick. This disruption that you were talking about, um, it's also, you can also see it in the personal loan space where the share of banks giving out these personal loans is dropping over last years and the fintechs are really catching up. One example, and, and as we're talking about data, that's, it's also really relevant here. One example is Lending Club, the, the peer to peer lending marketplace in the US. They also have a, a really interesting approach towards data. So what they're doing is they're assessing the risk profile of their potential borrowers themselves. And over the last years, the system by which they do that has become more and more sophisticated. And you can actually see that by looking at the correlation between their rating of a potential borrower and the FICO score of the potential borrower. So over the years, as Lending Club has added more and more alternative data sources into their credit scoring system, the correlation between their rating rates and the FICO scores have declined from around 80% in 2007 to only about 35% around 2014-15 is kind of the most recent numbers we have. So what does that mean practically? So Companies like Lending Club are integrating alternative data sources in their scoring process. And that can mean everything from bank account transactions to rent or utility payments, other reoccurring transactions, electronic records of deposits or withdrawal transactions, insurance claims, credit card transactions, 
all different kind of consumer data the company their leverages and if you look at the the rating grade that lending club is putting these potential borrowers and that's between a and g what you can see is that back in 2007 their lowest rating grade the, the g is made up of completely made up of fico score holders under under 680 points meaning these really you know potential borrowers with a high risk if you compare that to today you have these potentially these high risk you know low fico score holders actually in lending clubs rating grade number a so they're they're, they're best um, rating grade and and lending club is able to do that so they they're able to provide really great you know conditions lending conditions to a borrower with such a low fico score by taking into account all these other different alternative data sources and and that you know at the end of the day enables them to calculate the the credit risk better offer a better rate to the to the potential borrower save costs themselves but then, like I said, increase their, their their own profitability by giving out loans to borrowers that otherwise would not qualify for a loan traditionally. And on the other side, by assessing the, the credit risk more accurately, they can limit the loans to candidates where where they see uh, you know a, a higher risk profile. So utilizing this data, especially for a company like Lending Club, is critical. But as we discussed, it's becoming more and more critical overall. Max, I think you bring up a great point here and tying it back to the area of my focus in insurance. Like you said, this, this data enabled connections with lending club and what they're able to do in issuing, you know, what may have been viewed in the past as riskier loans, but they're actually, because they have this surplus of data, they know that the, the loan is not that risky. And you see this a lot in the insurance space, tying this back to root insurance, what they've done and using the mobile phone as a way to capture your driving behavior, they've actually made that portion of your risk score a lot larger in comparison to some of the other insurance carriers out there that'll take in your credit score, where you live, your sex, your age, and all these different variables where they've come out and said, Look, we have this ability with your phone to capture how you are actually driving and use that to price in your your score. And I think this is a huge shift in the way that fintech and insurtech have come into the space and really disintermediated, again, some of these larger banks and insurance companies that were stuck in their older ways. And you're starting to see it with companies like Lending Club, like some of these insure tech players. Yes, exactly. So I think this is a great moment to go to our next segment here. We're going to hear a short discussion about the the relationship between public and private companies. So let's let's roll the clip. This is a really good illustration of we are not in a bubble. Everyone's afraid after 10 years of a bull market that here we are again, late 90s, everybody's chasing the dream. They're not chasing the dream. I can tell you that for sure. Our portfolios, again, you've heard me say, some of you have heard me say this. If you give us a five-year time horizon, we are running deep value portfolios. The, the overvaluation is in the private markets. The stocks selling for two times sales in 
in our portfolios, whether it's 3D printing or or in the biotech space, are selling for 10 to 30 times sales in the private markets. In the private markets, there's too much money chasing too few opportunities. And in the public markets, the most interesting thing I've heard in recent weeks, a, a CEO of a 3D printing company told me this, because the privates are seeing when they, their stocks go public, when they take stocks public, uh, they're seeing them not do so well for the most part. Uh, what venture, what public private players are doing is they're shorting in the public markets because they can to hedge against the possibility there will be a decline yeah. in their stocks upon an IPO because they'll still hold most of the stocks. So are you trying to tell us that the, all of these unicorns out there, and there's more than 100 that are waiting to go public, we just heard about Uber today, um, uh, they're all sitting out there, uh, Pinterest, Palantir, uh, we know hundreds and hundreds of them, there's 260, I think, that yeah. go public. Are you saying they're sitting in the private market? They're all overvalued, right? Yeah, they're now? about. They're, a, I think uh, Max is here. He knows the number: one point three trillion dollars worth of them of these unicorns waiting to go public. Yeah. Um, we think they're overvalued. It would. Uh, we. It is highly unlikely we'll be buyers. Okay, so you just heard Kathy Wood talk about the overvaluations in the private market, and there's no person better to speak to this point than Max. Max, I know you've done a lot of work on the public versus private space. Can you just give us a broad, you know, what's going on in the space? Is it overvalued? Are the private markets overvalued? And and what are we going to see when some of these IPOs start getting closer to the actual date that they're going to list? Yeah. Before we get to the bigger picture, as we're talking about data, I actually just, just want to make one other comment because a lot of these, these talking points we hear in this private versus public debate is, Hey, innovation can only come from the early stage companies and from the private companies and, and all these incumbents uh, in the public space, you know, have no chance. And, and for some names that, that might be true. And we actually think it's true for, for a lot of names. If you think about traditional banks, but there are great fintech names in the public markets which are in, uh, innovative, highly innovative. And we think that in some cases they have a huge actually competitive advantage to, you know, in regards to these earlier private companies. So we just talked about Square Capital using all these, all this, this huge universe of data which they are collecting with the point of sale device and in their decision process to giving out this loan, they are of course not only considering the the data points they're collecting from one from one merchant, but they're comparing this data across all their their different you know operations from all different merchants and create a you know a, a holistic picture there. A private company just couldn't do that because an, an early stage company, I would argue, doesn't have that access to data so if we're talking about you know the the products of the future which are going to be successful being data driven companies with a large scale such as square might actually at a competitive advantage and it so so in that regard you know if you're talking about data and leveraging data only large scale institutions or organizations can collect that data and and for the most part companies like that happen to be public 
for a variety of reasons you know from a governance perspective it makes sense to 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 go public at some point so just overall you know this this discussion uh, can't be kind of reduced to well innovation is in the private side and in the early stage side or something like that we we definitely disagree with that and i think square capital is a great example for that the the bigger picture though and kathy kathy talked about the number so we think that a lot of companies in the private markets are overvalued according to our research there are around 1.2 to 1.3 trillion dollars sitting in unrealized values in unrealized unrealized value in the private markets in the unicorns alone so that's not considering all the other private companies with valuations under 1 billion dollars and we, you you really have to think about what's what's going to happen with these with this 1 trillion dollars What's kind of adding to that is that private equity firms have another one trillion dry powder sitting around. So you know this this might be growing in in the future years. Just so everyone heard that there's an additional one point three trillion dollars in dry powder sitting waiting to be invested in still in the private market. Yes, exactly. Wow. And and then of course you have all these public private players. Kathy mentioned them also pouring into the. And in the private markets, you know, we, we saw a, a huge surge of mutual fund investors. So over the last years, and the question you kind of have to ask then is, you know, if you have this $1.2 trillion sitting around there, how big is actually the, the kind of exit funnel? At which rate is it actually possible for all these billions and trillions of dollars to actually, you know, exit via an IPO or a trade sale or something like that? And from our research, the ratio between this unrealized value and the exit value, actually the other way around, so the, the ratio between the, un, the annual exit value versus the total unrealized value over the last years was just about 15%. So just from that, you can you know, imagine that it will take years and years for this, for this value to actually realized on paper and, and you know, you know, flows into the, into the public market at one point. One sector we can look at the mobility sector. There we see an extremely low ratio. So the, the ratio between the exit volume and the unrealized value over the past six years in mobility unicorn was only 3%. And and that was while the valuations you know grew from nine billion six six years ago to over two hundred billion you know accumulative in unrealized value over the six years. So so this is one one area where we see a lot of you know unrealized value sitting around. And of course the big names are now going towards towards IPO territorium, which is of course Lyft. And, and Uber. And it's going to be really interesting to see what's happening around that, around that IPOs. And you can look at this phenomenon from, from a, from a variety of perspectives. You even see some of the LPs kind of questioning what the GPs are doing there. So Wall Street Journal reported multiple times over the last, over the last months about the investors in the SoftBank Vision funds actually being a little bit critical about the high price they're paying. For these companies, and Kathy also mentioned the the overvaluation there. So, if we look at some companies in in the private versus the public space, which are relatable, you know, if you compare a, a Pinterest to a Twitter, you have a fourteen times uh, price to sales multiple for the private pin, Pinterest name, and only a seven 
price of sales multiple for Twitter. You have a similar relationship in the 3D printing space where Formlabs in the private space has a 10x multiple. Stratasys trades around at a, at a two times sales, right? Biotech, Kathy also mentioned it. Moderna, in, before they went public, around 30 times sales. Arcturus, around that time, between three and four times sales. So this, this overvaluation, you know, you can actually quantify it. And you can, you can only quantify it by looking at these price of sales multiples. Another, pers- another perspective is ac- actually coming from academia. So if you have been reading our newsletters over the last weeks, which if you're not already subscribed, I would highly recommend you subscribe to our newsletter. We covered a paper by the Stanford University, co-authored by uh, University of British Columbia and the National Bureau of Economic Research called Squaring Venture Capital Returns with Reality. And what that paper talks about is exactly that, the overvaluation in the private market. And and they take a really interesting approach to that. They kind of look at the the calculations of the valuations we read about so much in, in the news these days. Because these valuations, as we read about them, for the most part are just based on the assumption that all shares in these private companies are worth the same. So in these, in, in these calculations, they basically take the most recent share price and multiply it with all shares, assuming that all shares are worth the same amount. However, what we actually see and what these researchers surface by, by looking at huge amounts of legal documents is that late-stage investors offer, often receive different kind of special rights that are tied to their shares, such as um, li- special liquidation preference, better liquidations preferences, IPO return guarantees, overall just different protections and, and special rights, which are tied to these often preferred shares. And in the case of a liquidity event, the holders of these shares classes will actually benefit at the cost of the other shareholders, which hold common shares or just in general shares that were issued earlier. So most for the most part employees and early stage investors hold these other shares so the bottom line is there that all shares are not worth the same in fact the researcher found that the common shares are over 50 percent overvalued because if it comes to a liquidity event the other shares will just trump them and what and what this paper is saying is that all shares are being priced as if exactly they're equal but it's not the case. Exactly, it's not the case. So what these uh, what these researchers did is they recalculated the valuations for a sample of uh, 136 unicorns they had, but now taking account the shares actually fair value. So they adjusted for the special rights and for the decreasing decrease in value of common shares. And what they found is is really staggering. So of their 136 unicorns. After they recalculated the valuations, half of them lost their unicorn status. Wow! And the 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 average unicorn was overvalued by nearly fifty percent. So, and so, twenty nineteen big year for IPOs. You have Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, Slack, a few other names I'm forgetting right now. But is this the year that this public versus private debate? gets brought up more is this the year that the the private valuations start to unwind a bit that's definitely a possibility so we we don't know when this moment of truth is going to come like i said 
over one trillion dollars in unrealized value there so we have a good runway <laughs> right but it's going to be a test for these companies and we're, we're just going to see how it plays out that's great and yes we will see how it plays out again a number of these companies coming to ipo and i'm sure most will follow suit max thank you for your time today uh, it was great getting your perspective on the fintech you know, angle of what's going on. Before we go, I just want to ask you, you know, what is your, what, what, what gets you most excited in the fintech space today? It's got to be Square. We, we talked about this a lot. You know, they're, they're kind of blurring the lines between businesses and actual consumers with the business offer, but then their, their, their consumer facing cash app. They are creating, and, and this term is, is used a lot, but they actually do create an ecosystem of these different parties, which are kind of flowing dynamically into each other. And, and, you know, we, with, with Jack Dorsey, we have a great CEO at Square, which, you know, is for us really interesting because here and there, you know, he happens to be the CEO of Twitter also, so he tweets a lot. Here and there, he drops some hints. He talks a lot about Bitcoin. You can already buy um, and sell Bitcoin with the Cash app. But there, there are really interesting possibilities that are coming up with Square, especially the Cash app, you know, expanding perhaps more into Bitcoin, adding more financial financial services, right? Square's in the process of um, applying for, for a banking license right now so they can kind of cancel the, the banking partnerships, which they now use to, for example, offer the direct deposit feature or the, the, the debit card. So at the point where they, you know, acquire their banking license, they're going to be a lot more flexible. So I think in terms of Square, definitely on the business side, on the B2B side, but, but definitely also on the consumer side, I think there's going to be really exciting stuff happening with Square. What about you, Nick? I think it's an insurance. I think, again, this is an industry that's been lagging behind in the adoption of technology. I mean, you're starting to see it come to a head and that's in multiple different lines. That's car insurance, home insurance, this ability to use new data points to price out new risk. You're going to see it with autonomous vehicles. And it's just one of these areas where, again, like you said, the lines of what fintech is or financial services is, is being blurred into so many different categories and verticals that it's just going to be very exciting to watch. And, and you know, I, I, I look forward to being able to sit on the sidelines and comment on what's going on in the space because I don't think it's it's really happened before. You started to see very slow movement, but today it's really coming to a head. Great. I think it sounds like we're going to catch up again soon. Yeah, I, th I think it does. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in into the next episode of FYI. And we also want to thank all of the panelist members again. It was a great event. Thanks to the ARC marketing team. Shout out to everyone that worked on the event. It was an awesome event. Hopefully, we'll be able to share the entire clip of the panel. But yes, thank you all for listening and, and have a great day. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.